You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about nirsevimab. Joining me is Dr. Lori Handy, an attending physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases at CHOP and Associate Director of the Vaccine Education Center. Welcome, Dr. Handy. Thanks, Katie. I'm really excited to be here. I'm so excited about this topic and to share it with everybody. I'm really excited too, and there's a lot for us to learn because in early August, the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or the ACIP, approved a new monoclonal antibody to protect infants and high-risk toddlers from respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV. So I'm so glad that you're going to explain a lot more about this for us. But before we talk about the new monoclonal antibody, can you help give us some perspective on why it was so important to develop something like this? What is the impact of RSV on children and on our healthcare system? That is a great question, a good way to start. So the perspective is really important, and probably most clinicians listening to this podcast have a bit of this. So Mm -hmm. we can think of those babies who have had sick visits for bronchiolitis, visits to the ED, days-long admissions, ICU admissions, even those bacterial super infections that happen after. And in reality, this virus literally reaches every single child by age two. And now a lot of this disease is preventable. So I'm going to share, I actually teared up when listening to the ACIP vote because Mm. it's just incredible to be able to protect babies from such a challenging disease. Looking at the data, which I think really frames this, we really want to first understand why does this virus impact everybody so significantly and how Mm -hmm. does it work? So It replicates in the cells that line our airways and then goes on to disrupt those linings. So depending which area is impacted, sometimes we see a mild cold, but sometimes we see bronchiolitis, pneumonia, croup. What then happens is this disruption is then coupled with immune responses that cause inflammation, mucus production. And in babies, all of this is occurring in very, very small airways. So Mm -hmm. those airways, they get narrower. They're filled with excess mucus, cell debris, fluid, and we then see the worst manifestations, whether it's fever, lack of energy, loss of appetite, and the breathing difficulties. So cough, apnea, wheezing, potentially asthma in some of our older children. And then unfortunately, children frequently have a secondary bacterial infection, things like bacterial pneumonia or ear infection. So it really runs the gamut. Mm Mm-hmm. The numbers, I think, are pretty impressive to process. Um, So each year, we know that RSV kills up to 10,000 people. The majority of those are adults, but about 100 to 300 are babies, many of whom are just otherwise healthy little newborn babies. Mm -hmm. When you look at how many children will be hospitalized, it's probably one or two of every 100 children will end up in the first six months of life, going to the hospital. We don't have another virus that has that level of impact right now. 
And then, as I started with, virtually all children are infected with RSV at least once by the time they're two years old. So this was just a prime target for prevention. And while it really helps our kids, the other pieces, it really helps our hospital systems and, and our clinical practices because we see somewhere between fifty to 80,000 hospitalizations per year due to this infection. Wow. No, I was going to say, you you know you're an infectious disease specialist when you cry at an ACIP vote, but <laughs> I think... <laughs> I think you know, during it. COVID, it happened a lot, too. I just <laughs> I just didn't expect it this time. It's true. There's been a lot of crying for you guys in the past few <laughs> years. But I think that, like you said, all pediatricians can remember, you know, hundreds probably of their patients who have really struggled with this virus. And it's so hard as a pediatrician, too, because there's not a lot you can do, right? Mm-hmm. There's no antibiotic. Mm-hmm. There's no, like, just blow your nose, kid. Like, these are little teeny mm-hmm. babies. And the mucus alone can just really be overwhelming. So it does make all of us feel helpless. And so I think that that's what you're tapping into is that now we feel like there's something that can actually help and potentially even, you know, prevent these hospitalizations and deaths that you're talking about. So that's why this is so exciting. Um, so let's get into it. Nirsevimab is injectable, but this is not an RSV shot or immunization per se. It's a monoclonal antibody. And I've seen it in the media already being talked about as a vaccine. But can you tell me why these semantics are important? And you know, help us dummies understand what a monoclonal antibody is. How does that work? Sure. So, Katie, this is a really important distinction. So it's not a vaccine, but it does work to prevent infection by a process called passive immunization. So it is on the immunization schedule. But let's back up. We'll review the differences between active and passive immunity before we go too far. And you're right, we're going to go back to med school immunology for that (laughs) if you're ready. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So um, vaccines, how do they work? So they present a weakened or an inactivated form of a pathogen. And that causes the recipient, typically our, our pediatric patients, to generate their own immune response against it. And this is our classic active immunity, what we're doing with most of the childhood immunization schedule. Mm -hmm. That immune response involves antibodies, but then it involves all that other stuff we learned about. So those memory B and T cells that are really specific to that pathogen that then are going to get called up when somebody sees that pathogen in the future. And, you know, the great thing is for many of the diseases we vaccinate against, children's immune systems are really ready to go and respond Mm -hmm. to stop an infection or severe disease. But what is important about babies is that, and, and all of our young children, is we have really specific vaccine formulations to make sure a young child's really immature immune system can respond to it. And that takes time. That takes Mm -hmm. two, four, six months, years sometimes to get through that series. So what nirsevimab does is very different. What this medication does is it delivers the antibodies directly, and it's considered a version of passive immunization. And that's because the person getting the protection doesn't create the antibodies on their own. Mm. Yeah. And we have precedence for this. So we use maternal antibodies from a mom who's gotten the pertussis vaccine during pregnancy. That's passive. It it moves on to baby, and baby is protected in that really vulnerable time. We use immune globulin after a rabies exposure where we just want to make sure somebody pretty instantaneously gets protection. Mm -hmm. And in this case, because the most critical time 
is those first couple months of life, using monoclonal antibodies is a great strategy. So, you know, it gets around trying to design a vaccine that an immature baby's immune system can recognize. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it limits that time factor of a typical infant vaccine series. They get the protection right at the time that they need it most and get through that first season. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense because these young, young infants are super high risk for RSV. We don't have time for them to build their own antibodies. They need to really, as a newborn, hit the ground running, right, against Mm -hmm. RSV. Exactly. There is the one important distinction that we need to pay attention to, and that is the fact that we are giving this antibody protection is somewhat transient. So they'll get the protection for about five months or the length of that first RSV season, but it won't stay around forever the way some of our vaccine protection does. And Mm -hmm. so when they're older, one, two, three years old, and they have their first encounter with RSV without that protection, you know, they'll be bigger, they'll have bigger airways, they'll have a more mature immune response, and then they will be better capable of tolerating the infection. So we're really going to shift the time that they have their own first experience with RSV to later in life. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. So we'll see RSV in older kids, but hopefully not in the younger infants as much. Yeah, exactly. No, you mentioned precedence with using another monoclonal antibody for RSV, pelvizumab, but only in certain high-risk infants. And this one required monthly injections during the RSV season. So is nirsevimab replacing this and why? So in the long term, yes, we will see nirsevimab completely replace pelvizumab. Two reasons for that. One, it provides longer protection, so that up to five months of protection, meaning you can just get one dose instead of those five monthly doses. Mm -hmm. Two, it's much more cost effective. So the single cost of one dose compared to, you know, that entire series of palivizumab will be much less expensive. So we won't be dealing with those prior authorizations and all of the paperwork (laughs) that, that we've managed in the past. In the short term, though, It's always tricky to introduce a new medication and get it logistically in place. So the ordering, the shipping, the storage. Uh, So in, in this season, you know, beginning October 2023, coming right up, if a practice doesn't yet have nirsevimab, it's perfectly reasonable for um, those high-risk patients that we previously would have given palivizumab to, to get them started on their palivizumab series. Mm -hmm. And hopefully within a couple of months, all practices will be able to have nirsevimab in hand and and ready to use. And you can switch over, you you know, for those high-risk kids, you can switch mid-series, get them a dose of nirsevimab, and then they're done and not have to keep bringing them back. And that at least will allow for a little bit of this time period of managing the logistics. The final question I get sometimes is if somebody got palivizumab last year, they were eligible for it, and now they're entering their second RSV season and they're high-risk, is there a problem giving nirsevimab? And not at all. If your practice mm-hmm. has it and you're ready to go, you can begin with that this year. That's great. It's good to know that you can switch between the two in between seasons or even within a season if you don't have nirsevimab available yet. So thanks for that tip. Mm-hmm. 
Now, the ACIP recommends nirsevimab for infants younger than eight months born during or entering their first RSV season and certain high-risk children ages eight to 19 months entering their second season. So can you help us understand who those high-risk children are? Yes, sure. There's a very specific list, and it's now you know updated on your CDC immunization schedule or the AAP Red Book, so you can have it on hand if you're not writing right now. Mm-hmm. But um, to to <laughs> review, you know, it's some of the children we would expect because last season they would have gotten palivizumab. So this is children with chronic lung disease of prematurity who required medical support anytime during the six months before the season starts. So that's Mm -hmm. if they needed chronic corticosteroids, diuretics, supplemental oxygen, any child who's severely immune compromised. Mm -hmm. And this one's actually left a little bit open so that a provider can determine, you know, an obvious immune compromise like organ transplant or ongoing chemotherapy. But, you know, there's many very unique conditions right now that a provider might understand the immune compromise better than than maybe a preformatted list could. Children with cystic fibrosis who have severe lung disease or have weight for length that's less than the 10th percentile. Mm -hmm. And then um, specifically for nirsevimab, American Indian and Alaska Native children, just recognizing they have actually a much higher rate of disease and hospitalization with with severe outcomes than other populations. Mm. Interesting. Okay, well, thank you for that. And as you mentioned, this is also posted in many places in the CDC, so folks can reference that if they have questions about who high-risk children are. Now, another thing is whenever we hear about, quote-unquote, new treatments, there's going to be some hesitation among families and patients, and this often comes from safety concerns. So what do we know about the safety of nirsevimab? Yeah, the safety profile is excellent. So This is an injection, so there are the typical side effects you might expect at the injection site, arm pain, redness, tenderness, and then a small number of children in the study actually had a rash at the time of injection or in those few days Mm. after. The great thing is no adverse events were attributed to the medication, and that's something, of course, we're going to be following Mm -hmm. over time in a larger population, but at least out of the gate, we don't have any safety signals that, that we have to be concerned about. That's great news. Now, let's talk about some of the logistics of clinical administration. How is this given? So it's given intramuscularly, just like a vaccine. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's in a single-dose vial, and it doesn't require reconstituting. But there are different doses which providers have to select based on weight. So there's a 50-milligram, 100- or 200-milligram. And it's really important to have a weight on that child at the time they're coming in so that you can make the right choice. One thing that we're hearing a little bit about, particularly questions and and folks looking into, is that in some states, there are questions around, since this is not actually a vaccine, if the same individuals who provide vaccines can give this medication as well. And Mm -hmm. most states are actually finding this is completely within those individual scope of practice. But do take a look, review, look at your office procedures and, and make sure that those individuals are capable and able to give this medication. And then the final thing is it can be given at the same time as vaccines. So Agreed. you don't have to do a separate visit. And particularly mm-hmm. for those little babies who are coming in, you know, 
a week, a month, two months, you have a lot of opportunities to get it mm-hmm. in. Earlier is better, right. but once we're in the beginning of RSV season, but you have some chances there, mm-hmm. ideally starting around October, but there is some geographic variation. So just look at your local epidemiology. Mm-hmm. And are there any side effects that we should be aware of or any particular monitoring needed after administration? The one thing we really want to be looking out for is children who have a history of a serious hypersensitivity reaction, including anaphylaxis or allergic reactions to nirsevimab or any of its components. There were, again, no significant adverse events detected in the trials. And often in, in little babies, they don't have a significant drug reaction or allergy history. So we should have a, a pretty good population to be working with. But the one thing just also to keep in mind is, again, this is a medication. So if there are adverse events, something occurs in your office and you're concerned, we'd actually report it to FDA's MedWatch program. Mm. If you were having a reaction and it was administered at the same time as a vaccine, you then can send it into MedWatch, but you can also send it to the VAERS system, Vaccine Adverse Event Mm. Reporting System, and just make sure we're capturing this and and trending over time, looking for any safety signals. Mm -hmm. That's great. So what are the real benefits of nirsevimab? Are we thinking that this is going to prevent kids from getting RSV entirely, or are we just looking to decrease their morbidity and mortality, or all of the above? (laughs) I wish we could say we're just reducing entirely, but the data we really saw in the trials is that there um, was a significant reduction in the risk of medically attended RSV lower respiratory tract infections. That was a, it was a risk reduction of 79%, so pretty mm. big. And then looking just at hospitalizations due to lower respiratory tract infections, that was a risk reduction of 80%. Oh, wow. The value that we couldn't really tease out from the trials, just again, based on the number of events, was ICU admissions specifically. But judging by the impact on disease, we anticipate that will be a reduction as well. And thankfully, in the trial, there were no deaths related to RSV, Mm -hmm. but that's a rare outcome and something we really wouldn't anticipate seeing until we had moved this into a a larger population. But Mm -hmm. I know we're going to get real-world measures of effectiveness really as soon as this medication moves into the larger population. Yeah, this will be a really interesting and hopefully exciting RSV season because hopefully we'll be seeing a lot less of it and a lot less complications. So what do you hope that pediatricians will take away from this and know about nirsevimab headed into this RSV season? Sure. So, you know, we've talked a lot about how this is not a vaccine. However, I expect parents to act and question this as if it's a vaccine. So Mm -hmm. the key we know to making vaccines really successful, successful meaning gets into the bodies of the children to protect them, is that we are able as primary care providers, pediatricians, specialists, to give a really strong recommendation to our patients that they should receive this medication. And to be able to do that, you know, it involves doing a little the background research, listening to podcasts like this, reading up on this, at, you know, whichever resource you prefer, but making sure you have the answers to your family's questions so that you mm-hmm. can really provide that strong recommendation. And again, you know, we've all had the experience of seeing so much RSV. Probably this is not one that's that's hard for us to all get behind, but um, mm-hmm. just recognizing this, that's the key to success. You know, once we have a medication, 
it only works if we actually get it into the population at large. So I'm really optimistic. If we can kind of move this into all of our babies successfully, we'll see a really dramatically different respiratory viral season compared to last year. Well, I think that would be great. And I hope that that happens. I hope people get nirsevimab. And thank you so much for teaching us more about it today and really wrapping our heads around something that is new, but not really new because we use monoclonal antibodies all the time, as you mentioned. But we're really excited for and hopeful for what this can do for our pediatric patients. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.